0: The Olive Garden's in Manhattan. At least when I last checked like eight years ago, a plate of pasta at one of these Olive Gardens was like 17 or 18 dollars. Oh my god. Cheap food in New York is still really expensive and it's amazing and it's crazy on The Eater Upsell, we're going to be talking with Jessica Coslow, the chef and proprietor of Squirrel in Los Angeles, launcher of a billion
1: grain bowls. And just such an inspiration to like so many chefs right now, although you don't really hear people talking about how influential she is.
0: We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it with her. Oh my gosh. It's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Chain restaurants inflate their prices here. Mm-hmm. what you're selling is comfort and familiarity and ease what you're selling is like oh the diner does not have to be challenged and like yeah I would way rather spend like after tax and tip 20 to 25 dollars on like Mario Batali's famous beef cheek ravioli but maybe if you're not interested in going too far outside of your comfort zone you just want the freaking like never-ending possible of fettuccine alfredo and you want to call it a day
1: I totally see where you're coming from. You know, it's funny because you know I like I like chain restaurants. I have some chain restaurants that I really like, but when they are just as expensive as a different restaurant that has like a lot less kind of corporate machinations, and when the food's a lot better, there's not really a great argument to go to these places.
0: There isn't for you, but that's because you're adventurous and you like new things and you like quality, and the thing you're looking for is contained within the food itself. But if you're like a tourist or a picky eater or someone who doesn't feel like, you know, dealing with the scrum at Babo that persists, even though the restaurant is like 15 or 20 years old. Right. Like, fine, fuck it. Go to Olive Garden.
1: Well, you know what I find interesting? So this week in New York, uh, Chick-fil-A opened its first real location. There was a little one inside of an NYU food hall that didn't have all the things that all the other locations did. This is a freestanding location. People went nuts for it. They waited out front and the line was like an hour and a half to get in on its first monday people waited overnight to get free uh, 52 free meals people went you know really Eat they shit. they went ham on on yeah. chick-fil-a and there just seems to be this thing i didn't really ever go there growing up or anything or you know i went to college in the south ate there a few times but people that grew up with it they really they have this i think they have like an emotional connection to this this chain restaurant
0: i think people have emotional connections to chain restaurants in general yeah and chick-fil-a in new york is a is a fascinating example because it until its more recent expansion into places like new york it was such an intensely regional chain it was it was the fast food restaurant of the south so if you left that area and if you grew up there like it's one of the things you miss because the things you miss are the things you can't get wherever it is that you've moved you know so so, of course, it winds up cultivating, and this is what nostalgia is, right? Yes. It's like nostalgia is not seeing things for the way they are. Pain
1: from an old wound. Yeah. That's what Dan, Don Draper said.
0: <laughs> I mean, it is, right? Like, nostalgia is not seeing, like, oh, this is like some fried chicken between two pieces of bread. Nostalgia is saying, like, this is home, this is comfort, this is memory, this is familiarity. And suddenly, this, like, portal this like time space portal to my childhood is opening in midtown manhattan of course you freaking wait in line for two hours for that the downside though the downside that that winds up sort of rushing in very quickly is that that magic fades because as soon as something becomes attainable it's become attainable
1: right and it's like not hard to get i would uh venture to say that (laughs) Yes, that is that is that is profound, and uh, you know, I'm not specifically trying to stir shit up, <laughs> but in some scenario, I'd love to see In-N-Out come to New York oh, because that man. fall would be so hard.
0: It would it would be really rough. I mean, I think I I is it weird that I kind of think about this a lot? I feel like you might too, like I, yeah. I not infrequently wonder because it is inevitable right i think we can agree that at some point in the future in and out will open in new york city
1: yeah in and out is like your high school significant other that is just wonderful and just great and then you go to college and whoa. well
0: and new yorkers love nothing more than to like i selectively identify things on the west coast that they are willing to approve of sure Right. And in and out becomes one of those. Yeah. Because you don't have to say New York has a better version because New York doesn't really have an analog. And there were some like weak attempts to set up Shake Shack as the anti In and Out. No, but it quickly fiddled. It's
1: a different it's on a different plateau.
0: Yeah. So for like a New Yorker to be obsessed with In and Out is like a New Yorker to be obsessed with palm trees. Right? It's a right. safe <laughs> thing. It's a safe thing to be really into because like we don't ever have to concede that we have a worse version. Right. But as soon as In-N-Out opens in New York, people are going to be like, oh, yeah. Like, they're going to, like, lose their fucking minds for, like, the first month. And everyone's Instagram is going to be like, I have In-N-Out. I'm so cool. And then everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, no, it's a fast food burger. And they're, like, really...
1: They're really thin.
0: Yeah, it's fine, I they're guess. They're
1: thin, salty burgers. The
0: fries are really mushy.
1: Yeah. You got to order them well done, I hear.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the whole secret menu thing. But, like, it's it's true. I think, like, you know, people attach a lot of things to to chain restaurants, and, and I think about chain restaurants a lot because we run this series on Eater.com, Life in Chains. It's which the are, best series. It's the best series. It's writers who produce personal essays about their lives, and they're all kind of connected in one way or another to a chain restaurant that has, like, helped shape or affect or been the setting for these major stories. And everybody that I talk to about this series, which I edit, like, they're all like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, like, you, everybody has some connection to a chain restaurant because... And over over a year plus of editing these stories, I've realized that it's because chain restaurants are stable. They remain exactly the same. And so when things are tumultuous or when things are like shifting, whether in a good way or a bad way, the chain restaurant is always there for you.
1: That that reminds me of something um, like many moons ago, like ten, eight years ago or something. I had this boss who his favorite restaurant that he always he always went there for lunch and he always would be like you guys did a good job let's go here it was Outback Steakhouse oh that's really cute yeah <laughs> but it was kind of funny because he really found the versatility in this restaurant like he's like no we could just go there for a drink and get a blooming onion or like you did a good job let's go get lunch there or like whoop got a meeting with a client got to go to have dinner there yeah no I mean and he- it was like he just I loved Outback Steakhouse. If you're if
0: you're a creature of routine, you know, like and and I know, you know, both you and I have restaurants in New York that are one offs that we get really into, right? Like mm-hmm. I go to certain restaurants over and over, and they're not always ones that live near me. They're just ones that sort of strike my fancy. And imagine if like a restaurant that I was obsessed with, like like Lafayette, this French bistro on in in. Where is it? No ho in, in New York. Like imagine if there were forty Lafayette's all over the United States. And if I were somewhere and I was just like, Man, I want something that's familiar and comforting. I could just walk in the store and I could have it. And it it's great. It's great to have that.
1: A beautiful vision of America. <laughs> just... But that
0: is chain restaurant America, yeah, you know? Like that's, that's what true. Denny's is and that's what Friendly's is. And and you know I have a, I have a good friend um who who I used to work with and when either of us was having a bad day, it turned out that like independently of one another, like we'd lived these entire lives and both of us had developed this emotional attachment to California Pizza Kitchen as our bad day restaurant. And we worked in this office that was not too far away from the California Pizza Kitchen in Manhattan, the one New York, California Pizza Kitchen, and whenever either of us was having a bad day, we'd like email each other or g tat each other and just be like, CPK? Yeah, Yeah." (laughs) CPK. And then you just like drown your sorrows over the same exact barbecue chicken pizza that you've been eating since you were 12 years old. And it's like, all right, everything is going to be okay. So here in the Eater Upsell studio, we have Jessica Koslow, the chef and proprietor of Squirrel and Squirrel Away in Los Angeles. Hi. It's one of the coolest most influential restaurants in the country right this now this is in the
1: silver lake neighborhood of los angeles they,
2: you know silver lakers would say it is actually in virgil village it is the backside of silver lake so area of silver lake area is it like the silver lake of silver lake <laughs> it's the new silver lake of old silver lake
0: all right yeah and like silver lake i haven't been to la in a really long time so i'm very out of the the specificity of it but silver lake is like the williamsburg of la yeah. so it's like the
2: yeah. where the beautiful people with like artfully torn t-shirts live lots of man buns on uh, silver lake and and in venice but we have a joke that there's a manhole on the street and you just pick it up and you jump in down and you come up into williamsburg so
0: that's pretty much <laughs> like a total portal it is it t- is a oh, portal man. Yeah. i love that so so squirrel is um I, again, I have not been to LA in forever, but from what I understand, squirrel is like in many ways, the sort of emotional and culinary center of a lot of what's going on in Silver Lake. And and the food that you serve and the type of, of mood that you have in the restaurant has wound up being exported all over the country. And like people are like, oh my God, I want to hit this cool LA vibe. And that winds up being basically the squirrel vibe.
2: It's a little crazy. You know, sometimes like my inner me is like, you need to take responsibility for that and say, yes, that's exactly what's happening. Um, but I do feel it. I feel that there is this uh, thing happening with breakfast and lunch that people are paying more attention to those meals at the start of the day and how to create areas or restaurants that have a sense of an emotional attachment, a sense of community, a place that you feel like you can go every day and that is unique both in You know the energy in the room and the food that's being served, and you know for me that's what's been important in in creating the quote the quote unquote squirrel vibe. But um, and so yeah, and I think maybe that's what people are doing now is trying to create their own energy and um, place where you know people can feel at home.
1: Jessica, how did you, how did you get into food? Were you somebody that grew up like loving food and cooking or, you know, is this like something you found later in your life?
2: Yeah, I found it later. I grew up figure skating and because I grew up figure skating, I actually grew up kind of with a, uh, not really an awareness of food, but not an attachment to it. Uh, basically more eating to, to sustain and be active and maybe more consciously eating like but not really getting to fully explore what food was. Um, You know, I also, my my mom is a single mom, and she uh, was working a lot. And so it was basically whatever was in the freezer, and maybe to the Tyson, like a lot of Costco kind of upbringing. So unfortunately, it wasn't the most exciting food upbringing for me. And only later when I wasn't skating was I like actually navigating I was like wow this I've never heard of this this is interesting and it started in college when um I I met a friend who is a cranberry farmer in in his a third third generation cranberry farmer and he it was like really excited to explore food and I was so curious and I was like take me on all these adventures and that's kind of how the love for food started.
0: Did you ever go to his cranberry farm? Yeah. And Was so, it like a bog, like a, like a it's real... It's a total...
2: It's the Ocean Spray commercial. It is a bog. He lives in Carver. And this area in Carver is in Finnish. In Massachusetts? And, yeah, in yeah. Massachusetts. And it's a Finnish area where... um so, a lot of Finn, Finnish people immigrated in the 1800s and now, these generations later, own these bogs. And they all really connect with Finland still, but they don't speak the language. They all have saunas on their property and talk about like Finland, but they've never <laughs> never been. It's so great. Cr- it's a really unique thing. Are cranberries a Finnish thing? I don't, I think it was more that. They had emigrated to this area, and that's where you and, farm the cranberries. And that's where you and, farm the cranberries. Um, so yeah, they're part of the Ocean Spray Co-op. But they—they, they, it's the only jam we make at Squirrel that is not from California. We get cranberries from him every year, and and we make oh. his cranberry jam. And
0: jam is the thing that Squirrel began with. Mm-hmm. Was was that you make these incredibly creative, slightly left of center, not super sweet, not like lowest common denominator palette style. Jams. Yeah, it
2: started right? there. Um, I guess the thing is, I went to college and graduate school, and then. Where did you grow up? I grew up in California. Oh, cool. So in in su- Southern California? In, yeah. Yeah. So, I, but my mom's a dermatologist. So I grew up uh, in an ice rink and <laughs> no not in sun. the sun. <laughs> so I really like summers to me were how I could be in an ice in an ice box and
1: what and, was your thing with ice skating were you single were you did you ice skate with a partner did no par- you do? i was
2: too big like can you believe that you're like, like I'm a five, tiny person yeah but it, you know the type of partner that is for pairs is like four nine you know 90 wow pounds. i guess the tv doesn't accurately convey that yeah. when we're like yeah everyone looks so tall there but. did
1: you like it were you somebody that was like going to the rink all the yeah. time after yeah. school a little rink rat so. rink rat
2: yeah and but i think what the good thing about being young and hungry and really hundred percent committed to something is it gave me that passion to figure out, you know, that Pat, it gave me passion and that understanding of giving a hundred to 110% of my time and energy. And it was, I was able to transfer that once I figured out what was next for me into what I do now.
1: Wow. Yeah. Did you want to go to the Olympics?
2: Yeah. I think every kid who's like 110% is like, that's, that's what I'm, that's the, you know, monopoly prize you know. who
0: was your like who was your figure skater that you were really into uh,
2: scott hamilton oh
0: really <laughs> yeah you weren't like a christy Yamaguchi ride or die no
2: like? no i was more of a scott hamilton uh, he did these really beautiful intricate patterns in the ice and he was just so classic and I, I loved him for that
0: i feel like the like early to mid 90s were like peak cultural figure skating yeah. You know, like it was the whole Nancy Kerrigan moment. and That shit
1: was addictive, that drama. Oh, my God.
0: The, well, the, yeah. the Tanya Harding thing was like, what was it like being on the inside? Like you were in figure skating <laughs> culture when all of that was happening. I was still
2: so young, though, you know, those were like my idols, like beating the crap out of each other. It was very strange to be, you know, looking up to people who and going to the Olympics and seeing that they were basically um in a very terrible feud. Yeah, and like like literally kneecapping yeah. each other. <laughs> so I, that
1: what, was
0: my first exposure to like major hit style violence.
1: Totally. So when did the ice skating bug die? Did you just go to college and you're like I'm, I'm Yeah,
2: I went to college and I, I worked um I did a sport that doesn't exist anymore in the world. It's called school figures. That's kind of why I love Scott Hamilton um school figures yeah they're these beautiful intricate figure eight patterns it's why peggy fleming won the olympics and um this is so not food related no but but uh, everything is food related uh, yeah but i i was uh the last national and world champion in that sport so it doesn't exist anymore I couldn't really continue on so so. the logical next step is jam (laughs) eating more (laughs) more like a logical next step was like oh my God, there's a world of food out there that I've never known. It it felt like such a mystery, you know? So, uh, that was, I think that was the first step was like exploring all of, all of what the food world was. And then, um, trying to mimic that at home and cooking at home. And finally after grad school, I, I was like, I, all I wanted to do was cook at that time. It was just like a cooking fervor. And
1: what'd you go to grad school for?
2: Um, it was a, it's a program called communication culture technology. It's, um, that sounds like what we do. <laughs> it, it's it, like our job. It, <laughs> I'm going to tell people be. that's what I do from now <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, um, it's it was this very multi-facet uh, program at Georgetown that was partially MBA, partially academic, and everyone who left there in in my class, anyway, is either like works in digital broadcasting, digital media, or um, works for Google creating new products. And yeah, it's and you
0: own Ellie's Hibiscus Restaurant, <laughs> yeah, which is. The Google of restaurants. I, don't guess, know, I mean, it, the it, apple of. Uh, but it does eye. sort of speak to, I think, a certain amount of like focus and drive. And I also I have this this hypothesis that has been slowly building over over these conversations that we've been having with folks for the, the eater upsell, which is that the people who really pull it off in their careers are people who like to do everything, like who don't just like to cook or just like to be on TV, or just like to pick out the chairs for the restaurant, but like who have interests and like get turned on and get their passion sparked by like every facet of everything.
2: I think that there's a couple of different types of people that fit into that category. It's either chefs that, you know, an investor sees a great investment, and they're they're like, look, we're going to be your front person. You just cook in the kitchen. Even like Hugh, I think Hugh Atchison's a great example of someone who, like, like he can do it all. He's, like, he can be in the kitchen. He can be on the floor. He's very personable. Um, for me, actually, going going and working in kitchens late and also having a job as a – I worked in production also. Like, like TV a, production? Uh, digital production, yeah. Oh, whoa. Cool. So having those other roles – like, production allows you to see – all right, you need 10 people to finish, to do this task. You know, in a kitchen, if you're a chef, you see you're cooking, that's your goal, is to check things off a list. When you when you have to step out and be a different, like a producer, you see, it's not only about that list, it's about 10 other lists. And so, you know, all those other, you know, the academics, the other work that had nothing to do with the kitchen helped to define how to create a, something successful, I don't know. Yeah. a model of success, or so. What works for me, I guess.
1: After grad school, before the Jam Empire, mm-hmm. did you work in any kitchens? I did. did.
2: You- I I moved to Atlanta and um got a job at Bacchanalia. Um, with it's Annie Quattrano's restaurant um, in the South. It's beautiful. James Beard. It's a great just, restaurant. It's great, and I worked at her restaurant um star provisions also which is more of her like market fast casual and um her restaurant abattoir
1: what was what was your thing on the line what did i did
2: pastry so Mm -hmm. that's also a thing it's like we did a lot of preserving a lot of i mean that's the way of the south the way the south is you know charcuterie preservation at its core in every element um so that that is my background is in pastry uh after that i did work in LA doing, I was the bread baker for a place called Village Bakery and, and, you know, got to experience what night baking is all about. Um, but yeah, it's always been on, on the more sweet side of things. So how did the jam thing happen? Like, what is the, what is the story of the jam? The story of the jam is I was working in the South and preservation is just a part of what, you know, what we did out of necessity. And in California, it's, the, the sun is shining every day. You can have like a peach in your hand and be like, there's jam. And I'm going to make that the same thing for like five more months. But you don't, uh, you know, living on the East Coast, I didn't really, I'm from LA, but as an adult hadn't really experienced, you know, how I was, how I was living. I didn't realize that I had, I was taking all this stuff for granted. So only when I came back to the West Coast was like, wow wow, I, I can have strawberries all year round, not just at this point where they're at the market fleeting for a couple of weeks and no one else is really doing this. It was also something I knew I could do by myself. I didn't necessarily, I didn't have investors. I, I started from just me and a pot and it just grew organically. And that seemed, that seemed like something attainable, you know, like just starting with one person.
0: And then it now is like this mini empire. It's crazy.
2: It's a lot. So you
1: started selling these, the jam at a market. Is that yeah. The story? I mean, yeah.
2: just farmer's markets. And, um, I, I sold a lot of stuff to Nancy Silverton and she had her place called Shortcake and short order. Um, I was doing all of her pickling and, and jam on the back end, and, you know, I was doing it and I was like, wow, this is, I'm glad I didn't know how hard it was going to be. You know, I'm glad that, I went into it and was like, this is what I love to do. That passion mind of like, just go and do it and see if it works out. And then you kind of grow and evolve as you, as you can. So I knew that the jam was a thing, but was it sustainable on its own? How was I going to grow it? And it seemed logical to, to bring a breakfast and lunch element into the space because I had the space and because it seemed, it seems, and it is a connection between what I was doing with the jam so, the next step after doing the jam was to create this little cafe that was kind of the spin off of what you could do with it.
0: I love that you only serve breakfast and lunch i I feel like there has been such a resurgence of appreciation for non dinner dining in the last couple of years, and it i mean personally, like I have become super obsessed with breakfast, and I never thought I would be Where and- do you go
2: when you is there is there a place that does that like that obsession for breakfast can be? I think it depends on what kind of breakfast you're obsessed with. Like okay. personally,
0: I don't like maple syrup, which is a weird thing to dislike. And so many breakfast places are so maple saturated or that's the way they make a food into a breakfast mm-hmm. food is by yeah. adding an aspect of maple syrup to it. So I tend to like breakfast at places that have some kind of like not traditionally American culinary affiliation. Like, I really like going out for Asian breakfasts or Italian breakfasts or French breakfasts. But I don't know. How about you, Greg?
1: I'm a big fan of breakfast as well. <laughs> um, you know, I think that <laughs> in New York. in general. eating in general. But, yeah. but seriously, I mean, I think I've maybe even talked about this, like, uh, on the weekends. I love to wake up and immediately have a meal yeah. at somewhere nice and something good. Weekend breakfast hmm. is, like, one of my favorite favorites.
0: Because everyone's so obsessed with brunch. Right. But like rolling into a restaurant at eight thirty on a Saturday morning if you are if you have your shit together. and to like at squirrel
2: at eight thirty, the it's bonkers. Everyone is yeah. like trying to beat the rush. So at aren't we open at eight? And there's a line like out the door around the corner at eight. and you're like, everyone's trying to beat the rush. and they just made made that eight o'clock rush. So are you,
0: Come and, at then, and then do you like chill out at like traditional brunch times? And like, if you roll in at 1030, it's empty. No, it's never empty.
1: Well, no. I'll say this, that New York has a lot of hotel restaurants. Yeah, And that's those true. usually serve like the Nomad, for example, which is most people I think associate as a cocktail place or a really like spe- a, great special occasion sp- dinner kind of Flashy thing. Yeah. But like their breakfast that's served at 730 or 8 or whatever is amazing. Yeah. You know, and there's a few places like that in the city, but I don't think there's as much of this culture.
2: Yeah, I think... Uh, well, your menu is... Um,
0: the sort of star of your menu are these bowls that you do, like rice bowls and green bowls, which mm-hmm. are now like Panera does green bowls. I mean, they're like everywhere. And I feel like this is all very traceable back to Squirrel. How does that feel to like walk through the world and be like, oh my God, like my like my shadows are
2: everywhere? The I mean, I feel like it's so, it, we all reference things, right? We, I, if there's a grain bowl, it will probably reference some sort of Japanese dish or some sort of juke dish. Um, so it do, I don't know that if I feel responsible, I feel excited that, that it's just happening. I don't, I don't know how to describe how I how I scent, feel that
1: I have this theory, um, actually, about squirrels' influence on New York. Can I lay it on you? Yeah,
2: I'm I, psyched about. This. Oh gosh.
1: <laughs> so you know, I I cover the New York restaurants, and uh, in the last two years, there's been this new trend. I think of what I call the kind of neo health food California restaurant, mm-hmm. which is not. Um, they're borrowing from it, but like people borrow musically from different countries or something. Like, like, it's like this idea. It's like this idea of California. It's maybe whitewashed walls and some succulent plants and, you know. Um, I know
2: I know who you're talking about. Well, there's there many. Who. And there's when I many. say who, I don't mean one. I mean, like. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And They're very
0: Instagram-friendly
2: restaurants. Yeah.
1: yeah. And um, the food is, to my eyes, very su- – it take, takes a bit of inspiration from your restaurant in the sense that they're emphasis on breakfast, emphasis mm-hmm. on, on lunch, Uh, grains, vegetables, vaguely healthy, Mm -hmm. toasts, toasts, very big deal, coffee, and um, yeah, but it's just this thing that I find very new. There's always been kind of health food restaurants in New York, but they haven't really been – they haven't had an aesthetic like this Mm -hmm. before. They've been kind of like, yeah, you wake up and you go to Angelica Kitchen. It's like basically a diner for people that just – eat healthy or, you know.
0: Well, I think the New York places, and maybe this is the case with LA. I mean, I'd be interested to know how you feel about this, but the New York places are not actually healthy. Like, they are healthful, mm-hmm.
2: but like- it, They're hearty. They're hearty. The food is hearty. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this
0: is not, it's not like a low-calorie experience. It's more of a virtuous experience. Mm-hmm.
2: And that's actually, I, when I think about references of the of what, what we're doing, I think about- Richard Olney, I think French technique. I, I, we just had this incredible Iranian breakfast in in uh, in Toronto. I like those are like I don't think California as my my inspiration, but maybe it's because I'm in the center of it and I don't see, but I know like avocados are everywhere. Well, but what do you call it?
0: Like in New York, we or they, or the the
2: word has become California, but presumably you don't call your food, California no. food. I mean, what I what I hope to see, and yes, I mean, I hope to see vibrant, healthy, lighter fare, and a breakfast and lunch experience that has like a good, good vibe. Sure, put a succulent in the room. That's fine. But I'm also, what I don't see and what I want more of is I want to be challenged. I, I don't want just like a grain bowl to be put in front of me because they're out there. There's a ton of them out there.
1: So when you're putting together a dish, let's say a savory dish, because I know and I have some friends that live in LA that absolutely love Squirrel and go there all the time, and they were explaining the phenomenon to me and saying, you know, the savory breakfast, is just, there's nothing like it, and it's just different. There's something else, and so it's, let's talk about like a savory dish. Like what's right. you're putting something together? What what are the components that you know are important to you?
2: Yeah, this is a funny thing because I've I've said it a lot. Um, well, a friend was asking me this and my answer was acid. Um, and they're like, no, I think about acid, like orange juice, like that should be your juice. I'm like, no, but you need brightness in your food. he's like, what comes to mind in breakfast is salt, like bacon salt. You know, what comes to mind is like pancakes, something hearty, greasy spoon thing. And here I am being like, no, I want a lightness. Like I want to feel, you know, this is the first meal you're putting into your body. How can you make it something that like sustains you in a way that doesn't feel like it's you know a beer yeah (laughs) and sometimes that's when you go and eat breakfast you're just like oh man I'm just I'm just going to sit on this couch for yeah five five to ten um but for for me I'm like all right this is a meal and maybe it's going to guide you through lunch and how can you make that meal get you going in a in in a yeah in some way
1: so it's yeah it's about how how it makes you feel not just exactly how it's it's not just the like components, yeah. this
0: green and then this green and then this whatever but mm-hmm. it's a it's a gestalt. It's exactly. a holistic
2: experience. I don't know if you yeah I I really want you to come and I want to know if you experience that gestalt.
1: I Well I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well but I actually have a I have a theory about <laughs> a new theory about lines oh. especially related to breakfast. We have a lot was, of theories <laughs> today. A lot of yeah. theories today. A lot of theories today. Well I was walking around um, Manhattan last weekend and you know, you see the what I call a brunch bunch outside of you know, just a bunch, bunch of people standing outside, and it's never at the places that I think are really – well, sometimes it is, like Prune. Prune
0: is You'll always – You'll see they always yeah. have a,
1: a great crowd. But sometimes you see these places that are just like, why are people waiting outside? It's not even good. It's not even cool in there. And I think that sometimes when people are like, okay, I need to go and have this meal they just think of like where they've seen uh crowds of people standing outside and then they're like, "Well, that's the place I have to go then. That's where hmm. they serve it."
2: Well, the line phenomenon that did, is that. That did happen to me like uh, in Toronto there was the place Bang Bang Ice Cream and I saw a line and I was like, "You know what? I want to know what this is about. I'm going to stand in this line." And it, I It's did. good advertising. I was yeah.
0: I was on um I was at, in the middle of Kentucky a couple weeks ago reporting a, a story about yard sales and <laughs> I was standing at some table and I accidentally knocked over a pile of books and I was like picking them up and I apologized to the woman who was selling them for like blocking her table while I was cleaning up my mess and she was like don't worry about it you're here like I want a crowd because a crowd draws a crowd mm. and I think that's true I think a crowd draws a like a line makes people be like hey what's the line for yeah no. and
2: It also keeps people away. And then when they don't see a line, the the regulars are like, oh, thank God.
1: No line. I'll
2: I'll stop in right now. I'd
1: heard the story that, you know, Guy Fieri has a really bad restaurant in Times Square. And like to say that it's bad is like, I know, an easy blow. But like it disappoints you on the. I
2: think that's like just a factual statement. It fails Mm -hmm. on
1: the thing that it, it really shouldn't fail at, which is just being like a TGI Fridays.
2: Have you guys been? I mean, it's so close. Yeah, it's. It's like that kind Theater of thing where you're like, party? you're
1: like, the fries aren't crispy, you know. It's <laughs> oh. like they're cold. It's like the cheese isn't melted on the spurt. It's like just disappointing, you know, on all these levels. This but this is a,
0: like you had one job.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so it's huge. It's 500 seats. And I was talking to someone who right after I got all these bad reviews said that there was a a line to wait outside of it, and they waited in it for whatever reason, and then the restaurant was empty they just set up a line outside that's to drive so smart. up the demand it's to make brilliant. it seem like the restaurant was full.
2: That's like a club. That's a club
1: tactic. Yeah.
2: But it works.
0: It's, it's been a, a long a, time, but well, I, I remember, but you mentioned regulars and how regulars get excited when there's no line. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that might, I might be having like a therapeutic breakthrough right now. Like I really like the feeling of being a regular somewhere. And yeah. maybe that's because I am a food writer. And so that's like a special break for me. But like, I think oftentimes a line is the enemy of being a regular, like because part of regularity is kind of having that feeling of comfort and familiarity and like sort of like you walk in and you have like the cheers moment and like you say hi to the person you know. And
2: We and- have a wall at Squirrel and every year we add plaques to it or, or we get together with all of, every one of us gets together and we talk about who are the regulars that come in to Squirrel every day or, or that year and we add their name to the wall. So it's been two years of plaques. And these regulars are those people who would come a lot. And, you know, we've gotten a little busier there. And so maybe they're not there as much. And there will be the ones that like, like, there's no line right now. Like, I'm in, I'm here. And, and and it is hard. It It is hard to keep that regularity when um, you're serving more people. But at the same time, you want to keep your doors open. It's a balance of it all, I guess.
1: So as a respiratory, you like the line. You see that. It's, you know, it shows that people are.
0: Or do you have a complicated relationship?
2: I have a complicated, I mean, I have a complicated relationship on it. I think that in order to be in business as a breakfast and lunch spot, you can't, uh, because there's no alcohol, and this is something that I've, I've talked about, um, and because the margins are just smaller, you can't, you can't charge what you charge at dinner, um, you have to work in that way. You can't have to have a seated restaurant and do two turns, you're, uh, three turns. It's just not going to be. You, you won't be in business unless and, you have a line. Not a line. A, a different style of oh. ordering, like the ordering system. Right. So that that's all I'm talking about. Whether whether we have a line or not. Do I do I like a line? I mean, obviously, I, I would like to be busy. So I like I like that. I just want to make sure that whoever's at the register is kind because that first experience is something so integral to any coming coming back is like is that face nice to you right Right? like i at at this place i went to i won't say what it is but like i stood in this line i got to the front and the person was like Mm -hmm. "Huh," you know just like dead face (laughs) (laughs) and because of that my response was uh, you know. Yeah, I didn't really want to go back there. And and that was a th- and I'm sure they're exhausted. They're dealing with the line. And that breeds that kind of reaction as well. It's, um... But the
0: line is an interesting psychology game. I mean, I think like, you know, you're right. You mm-hmm. know, as as someone who has waited in lines, you do want to feel like there's a reward
2: waiting at the end of it. And the reward is not just the food itself. But like, but it's also the, being in a busy, bustling restaurant, like, yeah, you, no line means oh, it's kind of like mellow day here. Like, where's the energy in the room? Yeah, so it it also it also breeds it, that experience as well. I think um, a line is also kind of an
0: inevitable byproduct of the fact that food at lower price points is increasingly a very high quality. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, people are are getting super excited here in New York about the fried chicken sandwiches at Fuku or the veggie burger that Brooks Headley is mm-hmm. doing at superiority burger And like the nature of these spots is completely undermined by the idea of like reservations or sit down dining. Right. And the product is, I mean the prices are not unreasonable. Also like this is, this is like super high quality food at a really affordable it's point. Brooks
2: is the food of superiority burger is absolutely delicious and incredibly affordable in a way where I'm like Brooks can you keep doing it this way like is that everyone needs to go in and eat there every night because it is just it's too good at a price that's too great but yeah
0: and I and I think that's what the line is is like you have to like as a, as a diner
2: that's the that's the effect pay,
0: well you have to pay either money or time that's true and what he's basically doing is saying like you know I'm going to keep the price really low but the cost that is going to be born by the diner is like you have to invest 20 minutes of your life waiting for the burger. Yeah. And fortunately, the product is totally worth it. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, what's the, what's, the, what's the other side of it, right? Like the places that have lines with the one big line exception, which is the Cronut line, which I have a lot of feelings about. I feel like usually at the end of the line, there's something super worth it. And it's like, oh, yeah.
2: Like
1: I still haven't a had a Cronut. Reason. I mean, I've never had a Cronut.
0: This is not true. I, I've seen you eat a Cronut. Grabber. No, it's
1: not true. Really? Yeah. No, I've never had one. Cronut, maybe. Oh my
0: God. Am I the only one of the three of us who's had a cronut?
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: I have never waited in line for a cronut, though.
2: Uh-oh. He wouldn't let you say that, really? I shouldn't say that. Yeah, because he, he like, yeah, someone acquired. Someone stood in line for that cronut. There was a line. <laughs> but the
0: cronut line is a baffling phenomenon. Have you seen the cronut line?
2: Yeah, I mean, I like, that's, that's the amazing thing on Instagram, too, is, like, he will tweet, or not tweet, he'll Instagram the, the line and be like, and like, thank you, New Yorkers, for coming out today. And you're like, yeah, he's. Those are not
1: New Yorkers. He's an interesting, <laughs> he has an intimate relationship with his line. Yeah. And my favorite thing about that is that there are some people who are professional line waiters. They have like a service. It's called like
2: Oh really? Yeah. No way in New York you can buy anything.
1: It's it's I think it's just a few guys actually that will just wait in any line for whatever. (laughs) You charge they pay like charge like twenty dollars an hour or something. It's a great gift. And they that's a great uh, they have some company and they tweet the photos of the Cronut line and they're like, We're ready, we're here. And like Dominic Ansel will like share that on his giant Twitter account. He's playing he's, into the secondary. He's fine. Market? He doesn't care. He's like he's like
2: you're giving oh me. He's like as long as people chrono. are like waiting
1: in line. Shake Shack shut
0: this down like four or five years ago. There was yeah. a, there was like a scandal. The Shake Shack, the original one in Madison Square Park, on a beautiful day, will often have a line that stretches mm-hmm. around the block. And uh, some ha- like investment banks or something were sending their interns to hold places in line. So that like the bankers could stroll up whenever and just like pick up their, their lunch and, and Shake Shack totally shut that down. They're, I don't know how, but like... <laughs> but how? I mean, they're, but, like, they're
2: waiting in line. Someone's doing the waiting.
0: Do you think this is different from reservation scalping?
1: I think it is different because the problem with reservation scalping is then people don't uh, take the reservations. I think that's the problem. Or people hold the reservations they can't sell them and then they don't get used so it does it hurts the restaurant but i don't,
2: a lo- I don't know anything about reservation scalping no it's reservations a, it's a big, squirrel. Yeah, yeah
1: it's a big it's a big it's a big weird racket in new, mm. york.
0: new york is full of a lot of jerks who are obsessed with efficiency
1: yeah basically i mean
0: i mean i'm sure l.a ha, is in a different way
2: no i think new york it, it, we're it, new york is such a fast-paced city mm-hmm. change is happening all the time and and you have to be efficient here in a way that like in LA you can still, I mean, I love the hustle. Like I, yeah. I lived here. I, I, I really embrace that energy, but you know, it, it doesn't exist. I don't, I don't believe it exists at this level anywhere else.
1: I won't ask you if Squirrel will ever come to New York, but will Squirrel ever live outside of LA? It's very possible.
0: I would be really excited about that.
2: Yeah. Amazing.
0: Have you? um, I don't know
2: if it would exist as Squirrel. Um, With Squirrel Away opening, I think that that has more of a. I think Squirrel is a very unique situation where, you know, we're being very creative every day and pushing, changing the menu. And I, I really feel like I. That is, that is, that's why you go to Squirrel. You want to experience that? I to think be school. present
1: in the moment, there.
2: Yeah. That's so and L. and <laughs> is it? <laughs> Just like How so? Here, be
0: present. Be
2: present, guys. Come that's to cool, school. though.
0: Um, <laughs> see, that's the thing <laughs> can, that doesn't. Can I trade that's car? the
1: California yeah. thing that is not at these California places. 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 That idea, though. Yeah.
0: They don't have the soul. But have yeah. you been to any of the um, California-style New York restaurants? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: They're, 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 good. They're, they're good yeah they're and, good and the vibe is good and and it's fun and and they're busy they're busy restaurants
1: they're busy and when is the book coming out
2: um spring of 2017 that's a while away. yeah
0: i'm obsessed with the name of squirrel away like that is i mean i don't know i like terrible puns but like I'm it's so a terrible so pun but
2: we were trying to think of what to it's, call that it's a space take-away restaurant. yeah of squirrel, but like also squirrel away is a friend. It's this so makes good. Me very happy. It's good. It feels it feels right. Yeah. We were trying all these other names, and then I was like, "Why don't we just call it squirrel away?" And we're like, "Why didn't we think about that?"
1: It's clever, but it's fun. It's not like it I will, get it,
2: uh, and I'll it works squ- if you don't get the pun.
0: Yeah. Like I didn't yeah. get it at first, and then like I remember like a day later being like, "Oh my god!
2: Oh <laughs> my god!" And I had such an excited <laughs> yeah. moment. Yeah. No, it's good. It is good.
1: Well, Jessica, it's time for this part of the eater upsell that we like to call the lightning round. Okay.
2: I haven't what does that mean? It
0: means we're gonna ask you a series of questions and you tell us the answers.
2: Okay.
1: It's terrifying. I'm no, terrified. If you
0: answer them right, you win ten thousand dollars. <laughs> That's not true. Okay, so question
1: number
2: one.
1: <laughs> question number one is you are on a road trip by yourself and you're blasting some music. And you're singing along to it what is it
0: you don't have to actually sing but you can you just tell us what it is
2: uh it might it might oh god it might be flock of seagulls and i ran yeah yeah no shame that's good it's good this is a judgment-free
0: zone and also that's a really good answer yeah like even if we were judging i don't think we would judge that
2: yeah
1: no, it's it's I'm not judging. It's cool. You're just not I looking at would've... me right now. You're just like, I'm not <laughs> judging
2: you eyes to the floor. <laughs> I'm just avoiding eye contact. I'm just uh, That was you're...
1: the it was an incorrect answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's
0: a buzzer. <laughs> um, when you walk into a bar that you've never been to before, what's your go-to
2: drink? Uh, it depends on what kind of bar it is. If it's just like a really dodgy bar, uh I'll see if they have Campari and soda, just I feel like that's that's the go-to drink for me always. Um, nicer bar? I love Pisco Sour. Something with an egg white.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't like egg whites in cocktails. But oh. this isn't about me. This is about you. Aren't
1: they called flip- Now you're not
2: flips? looking at me.
1: I I'm, This is like, no, this is I'm like not making my, friends here. Did personal. you say farts? No, I think they're called Flips. Oh, oh, oh Flips.
2: Yeah,
0: cocktails yeah. with egg whites in them. Yeah. Yeah, but sour mix traditionally, like if you're if you're making your own sour mix and not buying the horrible, like jarred shit from the store, it traditionally has an egg white to like give oh. it that viscosity.
2: Have you guys given your answers on this show? No, it's. I mean, I'm not trying to make it about <laughs> you. Really more do want to be one of our the, but, the podcast hosts, but, but I'm curious. Like, what do you guys drink?
0: Um, my go-to is either a gin and tonic with lemon. Mm-hmm. Or a Manhattan. You
2: really you you make it hard. You're like, no, not that. Don't give me that lime. Well,
0: I I I it used to be lime forever, but I was recently like awakened to the beauty of a lemon and a gin and tonic, mm. and I feel like it's changed my life. And also, bars tend to t- to like shitty bars, like super shitty bars, tend to um, cut their limes into really tiny like cubes. That don't actually give you any juice, like you get those little like and they're just like one dry third you, of a wedge. You pinch
2: them and it's yeah. like mm, weird. nothing
0: happened. And 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 they have actual lemon wedges. So if you get a gin and tonic with lemon, you get more citrus.
1: Mm. That's a good one. I don't really drink hard liquor very much anymore, but it would be something like a well Scotch and soda. Cool. No, that's not a cool drink, but
2: I that feels like da- dad to me. Like that's cool.
1: Yeah, like it's just what it's like a norm core. But it's like it's very mixed drink.
0: Give give no fucks in kind of a cool mm-hmm. way, right? It's Thanks. Like, I'm not here to like be frilly. I'm I'm here to like
1: have a little bit of alcohol. Okay, yeah, I'm just gonna put some water too. So I'm yeah. responsible.
2: Good. Yeah. Yeah. Give. This is good.
1: Well, Jessica, this has been real.
2: This has been a yeah. very thank special you so much episode. for coming by. Thank you for having
1: me, guys.
2: Such a pleasure.
1: Are you on? Tw- what's what's Wait, your yeah. Twitter handle? Oh.
2: I mean, it's the same as Instagram. It's Squirrel LA. No, you, no you. What? It's just S Q I R L like L A.
0: Squirrel without a lot of the letters. Oh yeah.
2: Yeah. It'll. I'm sorry, guys. It's, it'll. Oh. Cool. me forever.
0: No, well, we forgive you. Cool. 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 Thanks for joining us, Jessica. Thanks. On the next episode of the Eater Upsell, we're going to be talking with Garrett Oliver, the brewmaster at Brooklyn Brewery basically the coolest dude in beer right now
1: i have three of their beers in my fridge at this very moment
0: i have three of their beers in my body at this very moment
1: (laughs) (laughs) there's a new episode every other monday morning if you're not already a subscriber search your podcast app for the eater upsell or go to itunes.com eater upsell
0: and as always you can visit eater.com where you can find more episodes read transcripts and all sorts of other cool stuff
1: the Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone.
0: Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bucamo, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Klute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening.